I want to invite you to open up your Bible to 2 Timothy, which is where we're going to be starting a brand new series this morning. And as you do, uh, I want to tell you something about myself, and that is this. I do a lot of embarrassing things. I do a lot of embarrassing things. I cannot help it. I'm a dad. That comes with dad territory is that you do embarrassing things. Now, I learned to do embarrassing things from my dad. It turns out that embarrassment is passed on from generation to generation to generation. Um, I thought of doing a little bit of a, of a little like improv time and doing some skits where the kids would sort of like act out what is most embarrassing that their parents do. But then I thought, you know what, I've got loads of counseling appointments coming after that where we would need to sort through and sift through all of that. So just use your imagination, right? Um, here's what's interesting. Sometimes the very things that used to embarrass me about my family became something I became proud of. Something changed. We're starting this new book of the Bible today, and before it was called a book, you know what it's called? A letter. It's this letter. It's called 2 Timothy. We know it as a book of the Bible, but really it's a letter from a person to a person, and by extension, to an entire church. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read the opening seven verses of this, and um, what I want you to do, there's a lot of family terms located in this passage. What I want you to do is I want you to uh, count up the number of, of times that you see sort of a familial term, something that has to do with your family, okay? Count those up as I read along, uh, and we'll discuss them in a second. So 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, says this. And the way letters start is they start by saying, this is who it's from, and here it's, who's, here's who it's to. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Okay, first of all, get a number in your mind, and I want you to hold it up with one or two hands. How many family terms did you hear in there? On the count of three, put up your hands. One, two, three. How many we got? Okay, we got a few different numbers. Here's how I count it. I see three, two, four. Here's how I count it. If you're using all the fingers on one hand, that's the number that I see. Five terms, okay? Let me point them out to you. Timothy, my child, that's a family term. Paul is talking about um, God the Father, that's a family term. God talks about his ancestors. Then God talks about his grandmother, Lois, Timothy's grandmother, and Timothy's mother, Eunice. So that's five. Uh, family terms. Am I missing any? 
Any that are in there that I, that I missed? Okay, I've been studying this all week. I'd be really shocked, but it can happen. Um, so here's what I want to get at. What are they talking about? What is it referring to? These family terms, part of why some of you may have gotten two, three, four, or some different numbers, is they're used kind of like on different planes or different dimensions, aren't they? They're not all just plain family terms. Grandmother and mom, were those the easy ones? Family terms, super easy. So it's talking about basic um, nuclear family, right? Your immediate family that you are related to. So grandmother and mother. But what else is it talking about? It's talking about a spiritual relationship, right? God the Father. God is our Father. He's revealed himself, not as our boss, not as our BFF, but as our Father. That's really miraculous. That's really important to catch that. Uh, And then also, Paul is writing to Timothy. He says, my true child. Now, is Paul... And Timothy, are they related by blood? Do you know that? Yes or no? No. How do we know that? We just went through 1 Timothy a while ago. And some of you just have known this. It's a spiritual fatherhood. Father-son relationship. There's a spiritual father-son relationship going on. And so Paul is saying, like, my relationship with you is so close. It's like that of a father and a son. Here's what's really powerful, friends. Our family here in this church, our brother and sisterness, having a father in the faith, a mother in the faith, a child in the faith, actually is more profound than blood. You know why? It goes on forever and ever and ever. Now, some of you, they're sitting in this room. Some of you are related to family members who are also spiritual family. That is so awesome. That's just an incredible thing. That we have family, that spiritual family, that will go on forever and ever and ever. And we get to eat dinner with them most nights, right? And kind of do life and, and engage with them. Unless they're leaving for college, then we don't get to. All right. Um, ancestors. Who are your ancestors? What's Paul talking about? What nationality, what, what ethnicity was Paul? Not a hard question. Yeah, Jewish. You guys got it. You're like, I'm pretty sure it's Jewish, but I think the answer is Jesus because we're in church. It's Jewish. Jesus was Jewish too. Um, So he's talking about his ancestors. He's talking about his vertical relationship, father, God, spiritual son, Timothy, and regular grandma and mom. So all these different sort of family relationships happening here. Now, let me tell you something really powerful. We just sang the song, You Say. It matters what God says of us, not what we're feeling or what the world tells us. Amen? And we have this thing called fear, and fear does not exist with perfect love. Fear is tied to shame. Fear and shame are like cousins. They hang out a lot together. And what happens is this. The enemy of your soul will try and attack the three areas we just looked at with family to cause you embarrassment. To try to whisper to you that you should be ashamed of it. Let me show you what I mean. Your faith in God. Do you ever get messages that you should feel ashamed for believing in God? I do. We live in one of the most unchurched places in the country. Almost everywhere I go, I am opposed as a Cowboys fan because I live in 49er country, right? But even more so, there's more Cowboys fans than Christians in the Bay Area. I'm pretty convinced of that because even more so is when I profess love and trust and faith in Jesus Christ alone as salvation for all people, that causes me, that causes people to heap shame on me. They don't quite say, shame on you, 
But by body language, by tone, by countenance, by, oh, the messages are sent, shame on you. So the enemy wants to whisper shame or embarrassment about our belief in God. How about our ethnic heritage? Does the enemy ever try to destroy people because of their ethnic heritage? The way their accent sounds? The way that their customs are? The amount of color or lack of color in their skin? All those things. Man, you go on any school ground. Christian schools too? Yes. It's the truth of Romans 1 through 3. We're all sinners. You go on a school ground, kids are cruel. You know what kids turn into? Adults. You know what adults can be? Cruel. They're more sophisticated. There's a lot of cruelty that goes on with where you came from, your ethnicity. And then thirdly, how about your immediate family? Does the enemy of your soul ever want to heap shame on you from your immediate family? Yes. What if you had an amazing family? You know what sometimes the enemy wants to whisper? You're the ugly duckling. You're the one that turns out not to have a special gift. Encanto anyone? Right? Everyone in your family shines like stars except for you. That's from a great family. How about from a rotten family? Some of you have come from wicked, broken homes. It's okay to say that. God grieves with you. God hates divorce. God hates abuse. And so many people who are so successful on the outside have sat in front of me, crushed human beings. And if anyone were to look on, they'd think, man, this person has it all together. And inside they're a shriveling, whimpering child because shame and embarrassment has been leveled against them because of their family of origin. Fear and being ashamed are just so linked together. Has God given us a spirit of fear? No. Church, I want to gift you with what's already true. I'm not giving you anything. I'm telling you what God already gives you. Christian, you, are, you do not possess a spirit of fear. Fear and perfect love cannot coexist. You want to hear a really acceptable Christian version of fear that often doesn't get challenged as sin? Anxiety. Worry. Well, I'm just a worrier. That's what I do. Well, it's sin. Planning ahead is great. Thinking ahead is great. I'm a leader. I do that all of the time. I confess my sin of worry. Do not be anxious about anything. Pray about everything. I have an 11-year-old child sitting up here. Eli, come here. What if we're... Come here. Don't be all shy like he pretends to not love this. All right, we're at the playground, and my kid is fretting about where his next meal's coming from. He's fretting about his safety. He's fretting about all kinds of things. He's worried, worried, worried. Other parents are there looking at this parent going, what kind of parent does this kid have that he's so worried? He's a nervous wreck. He's 11. Why is he worried? Do you see how it shines bad on the parent if the kids are running around worried all the time? Sit down. Don't be anxious for anything, buddy. We got it. <laughs> Think about it. Christians ought to be the most, like, it doesn't mean we're just pie in the sky. We just, oh, don't worry about anything. Well, worry about nothing. But uh, like, like our head's in the sand. But, but rather we just say, no, we have supreme confidence that God's got this. We have supreme confidence. I don't. I don't have it. But God's got it. I'm not worried about it. All right, so shame and embarrassment are so often tied to these three areas. Watch for this. In the first chapter, the word ashamed shows up three times. 
Chapter 2, it shows up one more time. So in the next couple of weeks, we are going to see the word ashamed, 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 ashamed. Anytime you're reading a letter and the same word kind of keeps popping it up, you ought to think in your mind, why is that sort of this key theme? Paul is going to say, don't be ashamed of the gospel. That's our belief in God that people want to attack. Don't be ashamed of suffering for your faith. Don't be ashamed of fellow Christians when they're persecuted for their faith. In Paul's day, it's called being put in prison. And then finally, he says, do your best for God so you won't have reason to be ashamed. Shame comes from fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Whenever you're in this worried state, this fretting state, this fearful state, pray and say, God, I, help me tap into your perfect love. You didn't give me a spirit of fear, but of love and power, self-control. Remember how I said that I, there's things that used to embarrass me about my family, but then it turned into a great thing? Here was one of those. My dad was an engineer at Lockheed, but like a pastor evangelist at heart. He would witness to everyone, everywhere, always. Here's what's shocking, even on vacation. I remember thinking around middle school, early high school, when it really bothered me that other people would point me out or think my family different, and I thought, Dad, give it a rest. We're on vacation. Let someone else do this for a little while. Leave the poor guy alone. He's just trying to drive us from our airport to our hotel. You know who wouldn't leave him alone? My dad. Why? Because the love of Christ compelled him. When I became a follower of Jesus, the thing that caused me great embarrassment caused me much joy and pride. You know who I tried to be like? My dad. Something changed in me. Nothing changed in dad. He just kept witnessing to whoever he came across in his way all of the time. What happened for me was this fear of people's opinion. Fear of man is how the Bible talks about it. Melted away as I cared about the opinion of God. And I thought, man, the opinion of God is that I'm loved. The opinion of God is that I'm walking in grace to the opinion of God is that I have a purpose and a mission. Why wouldn't I want that for someone else? They might think I'm weird. They might heap shame on me. They might think I'm silly. They might cast stones at me. But but my opinion of God mattered most. Let me look for a second at the setting and circumstances of this letter. Think about this. Every letter or email or text you've ever sent has a setting and a circumstance. And where and when and to whom it was written shapes and shades the meaning. So it kind of like helps us understand it better. So who is Paul? In short, let me say this. Paul is a giant in Christian history. Remember Paul? What was Paul's name before he was called Paul? He was renamed Paul by Jesus. What was it? Saul. You know what Saul's job was? Head of the hit squad for Christians. He went from being head of the hit squad for Christians to becoming a Christian who's now having hits ordered on him. That's Paul. That's who's writing this letter. Now, uh, here's what's also powerful about it. Uh, is this, Paul's a guy who practiced what he preached. We're going to see next week that he is telling Christians to endure suffering. He's enduring suffering. He didn't just talk about it, he lived it, and that's what's so powerful. He knew what it was to suffer, and as we read these words over and over and over as we look through 2 Timothy, keep remembering, this is written from prison. 
And not just prison, death row. Paul's pretty convinced that he's not getting out of prison this time. That he's on death row. What's his crime? Here it is, ready? Being a Christian. What do Christians do? We're called to be a witness. To open our mouth, to open our life, to bear witness to Jesus Christ. So he's just being a Christian, doing what Christians do, and he's on death row. His accuser at the time, by this point, is a guy named Nero, N-E-R-O, opposite of hero. This guy was a monster of a man. You can Wikipedia him. He is, uh, he is a Roman emperor, and he, is, he has uh, Paul locked up for this. Here is the series. Oops, let me go back to that. Don't look, don't look, don't look. Go backwards. There we go. Here's the series title, and let me just give it to you very quickly. Here's how you read this. You're like, I don't know how to read this. That's okay. I'm here to help. 4,000 hours to live. 4,000 hours to live. Here's something really powerful. Look around you. Actually, look at people behind you, in front of you, to your side. Every single person here, I'm seeing like everyone, every single person, you were all gifted a life you had nothing to do with. You didn't ask for your life. You didn't earn your life. It just was given to you. Here you are. It happened over time. But you know what I'm saying. We all are gifted this life. We didn't earn it. We just, it just happened. Here it is. And most of us think we have 4,000 weeks to live. Now, except for brain, math, nerdy acts, people have already done this. Any guesses on how long 4,000 weeks is? 77 years. Some of you are like, I'm 82, I'm doing good. Like, don't cut me off early. (laughs) 77 years, you know, that's that's about average, depending on where you are in the world and all of that. But that's a good long life, right? What happens if you were told in your plans, thinking, I think I'm probably going to get about, I don't know, 77 years. Yeah, I could be cool with that. Unless you're 76, then you're like, I want a few more. What if you were told you have 4,000 hours to live? How long is 4,000 hours? It's this. 167 days. Here's the question that I want you to think about as we go through this, okay? If you were told, no one knows the number of your days except God alone. He has ordained it. If you were told you had 167, I mean, I mean 4,000 hours to live, what would change in your life? What would you stop doing as frivolous? What would you for sure keep doing? And what might you pick up and start doing that you aren't doing right now? So as we go through this, I want you to get these two words in your mind. Paul is calling the church, not just Timothy as an individual, not just the church that he's writing to, but the church. God has seen fit for this letter to inform, instruct, and teach the church. God is instructing Christians everywhere to live uh, with urgency and endurance, to urgently endure. Sometimes I think the idea of enduring means we sit around just enduring, gritting it, not doing a whole bunch. But there's an urgency to this. Urgently endure is kind of this theme that we'll keep coming back to. Now, 167 days. Here's what's really powerful too. As he writes this letter, um, Paul is going to be 
executed for his faith about three months after he writes 2 Timothy. As he's writing 2 Timothy, he has roughly three months to live, maybe four. That's a little less than 167 days, actually. So as he's writing this, calling Christians to remember their hope, to endure well, all these different things, he has three months to live. He's going to be executed. It's actually the last words of the Bible he will ever write is this letter, 2 Timothy. So that's the setting. That's the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Here's a central truth that we're going to kind of walk through this morning. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. But the central truth is this. It's in your red notes that the gospel came to us from others who shared. We'll look back. And it is our turn to endure and share it with others. Okay? So let's look back first of all. The gospel came to us from others who shared. First, it's good to get clear on terms, by the way. People throw around the gospel even in church. It's good to understand what we mean by the gospel. So... This passage has some crazy condensed little things. You go, what is the gospel? Read 2 Timothy 1, 1 to 7. There's a whole bunch packed in here. Okay, let me show you. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Listen to this. According to the promise of life, of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Do you know what the good news is? There's life in Christ Jesus. What's the gospel? It's the promise from God that there's life in Christ Jesus. If you get mixed up on words and it's hard to remember stuff, man, boil the good news down to this. What's the good news? It's not that we loved God first, but that he loved us. He promises us life in Christ Jesus. There it is. Now, he goes on to sort of give a few words that characterize it in the very next verse. Grace, mercy, and peace. In different seasons of a Christian's life, man, you'll you'll need and want all those all the time. But there's seasons where fear is trying to rob your rest. And you just go, you know what? I don't, need, I don't need to take that on. That's not my burden. I have peace in Christ Jesus. I have mercy. I have grace. He goes on to characterize sort of the, the way this life is lived. Look down at verse 7. The inner life, what's happening inside of Christians is this. For God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So what's the gospel? It's the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. That's it. It's characterized by grace, mercy, and peace. What's it like to live it? Well, we don't live a life of fear. We live one of power. We live one of love. We live one of self-control. That's the spirit that we have because of Christ. So that's the gospel. All right, so looking back, the gospel came to us from others who shared. Paul references his ancestors. Now, if you read the Bible, you understand he has a complex relationship with his ancestors. Remember Jesus said this story one time? He said one time that the, that the sons, the people who should have had the, the meal first, he's talking about the Jews. The law came to the Jews. They're God's special chosen people. They were delivered from slavery. The Messiah comes through Jewish bloodline. Who should be first in line to receive the promised life that is in Christ Jesus? The Jews. Who miss it? The Jews. And Romans 9, 10, and 11 are some really confusing chapters in the Bible. They confound really, really smart people. But in it, Paul says this. Listen to this. If, if I were able... I would actually give up my right to life in Christ if my ancestors could have it. He so grieves that many, 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 many Jews 
don't trust in him and reject him as the Messiah, um, that, that it has him torn up. And yet he understands Paul didn't invent the Christian faith. The Christian faith doesn't start in the New Testament church. That's why we're constantly telling you, read the Old Testament. It came from the ancestors. So he looks back on that. Paul's faith is shared by and received from his ancestors. He's mindful of the lineage that he's been handed. Now, the Christian faith is a little bit like a baton. Now, this isn't a baton, but let's pretend it is. Um, I have been watching uh, junior high track meets lately. My daughter, Kaya, is in track, and um, she runs for John Muir. Go Falcons. And uh, here's what's fascinating about watching junior high track. Do you know how many track meets I've been to before my daughter was here? Exactly zero. Do you know my benchmark for track and field events? The Olympics. The Olympics is different than a junior high track meet. Let me tell you. So my daughter runs the very last event of, of, the, of the thing, which is an 800 meter. I'm used to yards from swimming. Meter. European. Uh, 800 meter relay. That's four laps of the track, each person running one lap. Okay. Now here's what's amazing. And my apologies to any and all who are in junior high track right now. When a person is trying to hand off the baton to the other runner. I have seen it all over this, this year's track meets. Um, we have some runners that come up. They practice this. I watch them on the infield, and the person receiving it is standing here like this, and they don't move. And so this person comes in, boom, and like awkwardly slams into them, and then they sort of do this handoff and run. And I'm like, eh, that's not how it's supposed to be done. Sometimes people are running this way, and this person runs to meet them. They can't run to meet them. This person has to cross their part and then hand it. Other times, they awkwardly sort of fumble it, and they're doing this. Here's my absolute favorite. Ready? This is no joke. Um, this is the last meet, Willow Glen High School. The runner comes up, and the girl is running this way. The one getting the baton is supposed to be running this way. Mind you, Olympics is my benchmark, right? Here's what the girl who's supposed to be getting the, the thing did. She does this awkward, like excited crab side hop. She goes, and her eyes are like giant saucers. And I'm going, this is wild. And it didn't help anything except burn her energy and entertain me. So she got it and she ran her lap. All right. Um, by just sort of rough estimation, I think about one in 30 made good handoffs. Of course, my cherub Kaya, where is she? Kaya, of course, was one of those. The Christian faith that we're called to run is like, that, is like that relay race. Our lap is our life. We get one lap to run around this thing. We don't just run to win the race for us. We are part of something much bigger. We get it from someone else. It could be awkward. It could be excited crab. It could be smooth as could be that shot us out of a cannon. But we got this thing from someone else. We have a part to play in world history. It's called our life. No one runs it for us. We can't hand it off to someone else. And we don't get to do two laps. If we think we're something special, we think, well, I should probably do two of those four laps. Eh, not the way it works. You get one lap. And it's not just to run this thing to, to complete it. You must pass on the baton. What happens if the four fastest people run around at the end, there's no baton? 
Do they win or lose? They lose. If you drop it, pick it up. You got to get that baton around. So this is a picture of our life. Urgent endurance. Now, Paul also celebrates the godly legacy that Timothy has enjoyed. Grandma Lois and Mama Eunice, right? These were faithful women. They were faithful women who didn't just talk about the faith. They must have lived it. You know why? Faith that is just talked about never passes on. You just talk about it and there's no power, there's no love, there's no self-control, there's no actual interchange to anything. It doesn't pass on. So Grandma Lois and Mama Eunice must have done that. Um, Eli, I want to come, up, come here for a second. Eli's getting picked on a bunch. Eli's going to make a cross, okay? And I want you to imagine what would happen. Make a cross right now. I want you to imagine if he didn't have one of these, but he was trying to explain to Isaiah how to make a cross. Here, turn so Isaiah can see. So, but everyone else has to see too. Keep going. Uh, imagine he didn't have one of these and he just talked about it. Let me tell you how to take a Rubik's snake and turn it into a cross. And he just started talking away, trying to explain to Isaiah how to make the cross. The chances of Isaiah ever completing a cross with a Rubik's snake because of something Eli said is nil to none. But if you were to show him, dude, you can do this in your sleep. What's happening? Okay, Kaya, get up here. Tap out, tap out. Baton, pass it on. Kaya, run, run. Okay, Kaya, get it. That's just pressure, buddy. We'll work on that. Here. All right, so Kaya is going to do it. We do this all day long. She makes balls and things, all kinds of crazy things. So here's the bottom line. Pay attention as she's doing this. If it were just words, it'd be very, very difficult. But to have one of these and model it and show it and then slow it down and say, here, nope, nope, turn it that way. No, that one goes that way. And then that's going to form this. Then it will be a cross that you can pass on, right? How are we doing, Kaya? Pull through for me here. (laughs) Anxious for nothing. Lord, help my daughter right now. This call to pass the baton on is for every single parent in this room, every single grandparent in this room, and every aspiring parent in this room. May we lead and participate in homes that are absolutely devoted. This is the kind of thing that takes devotion to pass on. We get it? Hey, give it up for Kaya! Remember that thing I said about I'm embarrassing? There it is! Like, I didn't even mean to be, but I'm sure I'm embarrassing to Kaya right now. All right, we'll leave that right there. Let me, let me give you a really powerful thing from the scriptures. Um, where is Timothy's dad in this picture? Where's grandpa? This is a very patriarchal society. Patriarchy is really good. God gifts men to be spiritual leaders in the home. Men, if you're, if you're a leader of a, of a home, you're the family priest. You're the family pastor. But we don't have any mention of grandpa in here. We don't have any mention of dad. I'll tell you something powerful. In the 16 years that we've been doing church in this building as Neighborhood Bible Church, regularly we have had single-parent men and women who have faithfully brought their children to church in season and out of season. They have just modeled what Christians do. Hey, Christians, once a week, we gather with the, with the family. We sit under teaching. We sing the praise of God. We ask and beg God for mercy. We receive it. We take communion. We give. 
I want to encourage you. Some of you don't have believing spouses. Some of you have believing spouses that are wandering crazy right now. That's hard. That's very difficult. But take hope and keep the course. Keep doing this. This is so powerful. It's such an encouragement to see that. Let me show you this. This happens in churches, by the way. This whole idea of passing on the faith happens in churches. I was at a lunch this week that gathers pastors from Watsonville up to Mountain View. We gather once in a while for a meal. These are like uh, theologically like-minded churches. And this was my friend Todd's last lunch. Todd is a friend who pastors in Campbell. We stood with each other on each other's wedding day. We've known each other since high school. Grew up in the same church, and now we've been co-laboring as Christian pastors in our home city all these years. Todd's the one in the middle of this picture, Todd Brigette. And um, what I wanted to show you was this, is that this guy on the, on the right over here in the black shirt, that's, that guy's name is Mike. He pastors down uh, at West Hills in Morgan Hill. And that's where Todd was on staff. Mike came and preached Todd's installation service at Orchard Community Church in Campbell. He came and preached it and said, this is, this is a man who's been faithful, and I'm, I'm commissioning him to you. Do you see that Mike um, uses his elbow pit to hold the baton? You see that baton? Okay, watch the baton. Mike faithfully passed on the baton to Todd. Now, Todd, you guys are so easily impressed. So Todd, Todd wears his faith on his sleeve, so that's where we put his baton. Uh, Todd has served faithfully for 10 years. He, he just received an invitation and a call to go down to Arizona. He's going to be um, a teaching pastor and some different things down there. I'm really sad um, as one of his very dear close friends, but I'm also really overjoyed because next to him is this guy named Daniel. Watch it. He holds it in his hand like a normal person. Good job, Daniel. Um, Todd has faithfully passed on the baton, the faith, the leadership, the mantle of pastoring to Daniel and a team of people. It's a really healthy leaving. It's a really healthy departure. We've seen churches that have dropped the baton, haven't we? Leadership is a special time of crisis for churches. You ever hear of someone leaving a church in leadership? Don't start getting into the gossip of, well, why'd they leave? What's there? What's going on? Let's speculate. That's wicked and evil. Stop it. You pray for that church. You pray for the congregation. You pray for the lay elders, the other staff people there. That's a particularly vulnerable time. I want you to know, every single Wednesday, uh, a group of pastors pray um, from different churches. And many, many, many times over the years now, we have prayed for these transitions. We've prayed, God, would you protect that body as this baton is being passed? I'll tell you what I'm actively doing around here, us and the elders here. We are actively thinking about, God, how are we to be passing on the baton? None of us knows the number of days or weeks or hours that we have. Okay, the gospel came to us from others who shared it. It's now our turn to endure and share it with others. Where am I getting that? I'm getting that from verse 6. Listen to Paul as he passes the baton to young Timothy. For this reason, I remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. So beautiful that Senior Sunday was here. We got to sort of, with words of blessing, send them out, pass them on, right? We got to lay hands on them, a sign of spiritual warmth, a sign of, of sort of like, conferring uh, our, our blessing on them, launching them 
uh, into the next phase of the mission. What does it mean to fan into flame the gift? Here it is. Use it. Practice it. Start doing something with it. Don't just... Don't talk about it. Just go do it. Fan into flame, Timothy. By the way, his gift is preaching in the church. Jot this down. I don't know if I put it in. 1 Timothy 4.13. You can look it up later, but here's what it says. Listen to the gift that young pastor Timothy has. Paul says in that letter, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now listen to this. How do you fan into flame your spiritual gift? By the way, if you're a Christian, you got a birthday present when you were born again. It's called a spiritual gift. Discover it, use it, put it to God's glory. Here's how you, here's how you fan into flame. Practice these things. Paul's talking to Timothy about his preaching gift. Practice these things. Immerse yourselves in, your, yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Church, this is for every Christian, young and old. So, Paul doesn't, God doesn't give us a spirit of fear, which has to do with punishment and shame. Rather, perfect love casts out fear. What spirit do we have? Very quickly, let me say these three things. Power. You know what power means? It means that we actually do stuff. God's given us good works to do, not just good words to say. Now, some people have speaking word-based gifts. Some of you are incredible letter writers and encouragers through the written pen. Yes, that's still a thing. Through the written thumb. I don't know how you'd say that, but you're just encouragers. You use your words to encourage, to remind, sometimes to rebuke, to train up in righteousness. And keep doing that. Those are word-based gifts. But others of you are, are, um, are doers and you have hands. I remember Jonathan. Jonathan's here from Texas trying to lure more of you away. Say no. It feels muggy like this in Texas all the time. Jonathan, I remember Jonathan was, uh, Jonathan was part of our GO team, global outreach team. Um, and I think he went to one or two meetings and he had this sense about him where he's like, I don't like doing meetings, I like doing stuff. I'm like, well, let's not put you in meetings then. You know what Jonathan did for years and years and years and years at this church? He led our Mexico trips. If you ever have a leaky roof or something fixed on your house, you want Jonathan there, not me. I'll come and encourage you. Hey, do it for the glory of the Lord. Hey, did you hear the one? I'll talk, but you don't want to put a hammer in my hand. You want Jonathan, the doer, to go and do that, right? So Jonathan got out of meetings and he went and did stuff. Both are powerful, but power is doing actual good. How about love? The Spirit of God gifts us with supernatural love for other people. The Spirit of God gifts us with supernatural love for other people. Catch this, even those who oppose us. Every story has a villain. You have villains in your personal story. Pray for those who persecute you. Who said that? Jesus. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for your enemies. Love your enemies. Self-control. Christians, we live by what is right, not by what our passions and emotions dictate. That's self-control in a word. We do what's right, whether we feel like it or not. But I feel so unloved. I feel dirty. I feel ashamed. That's because you're listening to fear. Fear's a liar. 
You know what's true. Walk in the truth. Practice that in season and out of season. When things are going great, keep practicing that. Keep reminding yourselves of that. That's my segue to my close. Here we go, very quickly. How do I do this? How do I keep passing on the faith to others? Here we go. What I have up here is this passage sort of sliced a little different way. Look at all the times remember shows up. I thank God as I remember you constantly in my prayers, Timothy. Verse four, I remember your tears. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. All this relational connectedness. We have a family leaving us very, very soon. Saw them here today. Jacksons, where are you? Oh, sitting outside. Hi, Jacksons. The Jacksons are leaving us. You know what? I will remember the Jacksons with tears. I'll think back and go, man, I love finishing well with a family. That's so powerful. There's Brian. Brian poked in. He's like, we are here, pastor. Um, There's a deep encouragement, isn't there? Just in remembering people that, man, thank you so much, God, for that person getting to share life with for a season. You know what that does? That creates urgent endurance in me to, to do life with people who are here right now, not knowing how long they will be. Verse five, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. Verse six, for this reason, I remind you. Here's what I'm getting at. By remembering to remind yourself, by remembering to remember, by reminding others, by rehearsing this gospel, this good news, this mission we're on, man, this is a part of how we stay strong in the faith. This is a part of our mission to other people. Let me have the band come on up. And with that, um, two, two key ways we do this. Family ministry has a tagline that says this, helping families raise disciples. Every service day, every Sunday school, every youth camp, every pool party, those are funneled and steered towards passing the baton of faith on, not just with words, but in lifestyle, in deeds, giving an example to younger people. We come alongside parents in doing that. Finally, our theme this year for community groups. This year has been bring it in. Bring it in is a football team huddling at halftime. Hey, bring it in. We all get close. We touch each other's hands. We look at each other in the eyes. And you know what we do in that moment? We remind one another what we're doing. Hey, we got this. Let's work the game plan. You, keep in your position. Let's, we got this. We all good? We all here? We all fired up? Yeah, on three team. One, two, three team. That's what community group is. Every week, you come to community group. You come. You are needed. I can't do this alone. You're needed here. When you show up here, your sincere faith in season and out of season is encouraging other people. We just went through a couple of years of worshiping together where there's 12 people in this building. We're not a giant numbers church where we make everything about the numbers, but every number is a life. And when you get together and you gather together like this, your very presence here is encouraging the faith of someone else across the aisle. God, would you help us? Uh, We just thank you for your word. We thank you for its timeliness. Um, God, I thank you for every person in this room, young and old. Um, God, we, we commit ourselves afresh to you and pray that you would use us mightily. Amen.